Welcome to Indie Reads Aloud, a storytelling podcast with your host, Diana Catherine Plopa. Come gather round, grab a snack, and listen to a story. Each week, we'll feature a new indie author with a story to tell. There are no long-winded interviews, no sales pitches, just stories. Most of the stories we'll tell will be family-friendly, but if they're not, you'll get fair warning before the reading begins. If you want to hear more, investigate the story notes for links to the author and where to buy their books. You can find us at dkpwriter.com. And now, sit back, relax, and listen to a story. Welcome back, everybody. We have another exciting episode of Indie Reads Aloud. Today, we're going to be hearing a story from Mark M. Bellow. This is the eighth book in his um, mystery series, and it's it it's new, and it's different, and it's from a new perspective, and so we're going to hear him read a little bit from the book today. Welcome, Mark. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for having me, Diana. It's good to see you. Good to see you again. Um, so pretty soon you're going to have to change that background because, oh my gosh, so many books. <laughs> so congratulations on number eight. It's been kind of an out-of-body experience. It's, it's, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I didn't know I had it in me. <laughs> so today, just to let everybody know, today's podcast reading does have a listener advisory. Check the show notes for the advisory just to be sure that little ears are um, properly supervised. Uh, as an attorney and civil justice advocate, author Mark M. Bellow draws upon over 40 years of courtroom experience in his Zachary Blake legal thriller series. A Michigan native, Mark received his BA in English literature from Oakland University and his law degree from Thomas M. Cooley Law School. After working extremely high profile legal cases, Mark wanted to give the public a front row glimpse of what victims face when standing up for justice. Combining his legal experience and passion for justice with a creative writing style, Mark not only brings high quality legal services to his clients, but captivating novels to his readers. When Mark's not writing legal and political thrillers, he writes and posts about fairness and justice in the civil justice system on his website, Legal Examiner and Not Fake News. In his spare time, Mark enjoys traveling and spending time with his family. Mark and his wife, Toby, have four children and eight grandchildren. Nine. Holy moly. Nine now. Wow. Holy moly. That's a big family. <laughs> Congratulations. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. So um, the book you're going to be reading today is the newly released You Have the Right to Remain Silent. How long has this one been out, Mark? Uh, a little less than a month. Wow. It is brand new. It's brand new. It's what we call an infant in the book world. Yep. So I'm going to read the Back Matters synopsis, and then we're going to get right into Mark telling us the story. Mia and her husband, progressive congressman Bradley Crawford, are not getting along these days, personally or politically. When Crawford is found brutally dismembered and murdered, the evidence points to Mia as his killer. Zach takes Mia's case, 
but has his work cut out for him because Mia has been hospitalized, shocked into a canatonic state at the discovery of her husband's mutilated body and unable to assist in her own defense. Sensing he must prove Mia's innocence to avoid an eventual life sentence, Zach enlists the aid of his crack investigator, Micah Love, and Micah's cyber specialist, Reed Spencer, to dissect and poke holes into the case. But for this case, Micah is convinced that Zach needs more. He recommends beautiful, sharp, brash, foul mouth, cocky, confident, New York-based jury, jury consultant extraordinaire, Sherry Belitz, and her team of mock trial focus group gurus. Sherry is the best of the best, She'll fly spec the evidence and unleash her arsenal of psychological techniques and predictive skills, including using focus groups or mock juries to determine what evidence or circumstances would cause the real jury to declare Mia Folger innocent of all charges. Zach, Mia, Reed, and the irrepressible Miss Blitz join forces in an all-out attack on the evidence while evil characters lurk in the background engaged in a sinister plot to assure Mia's demise. This sounds like an edge of the seat of your pants kind of book. Oh my gosh. Like, let's sit at the edge of the chair. Let's grab the tissues. Let's maybe even find that stress reliever ball that you got to squeeze. That's what this sounds like. High tension, high action. Well, you're, you're, uh, you're, you specialize in seat of the pants, so uh, so. Uh, no, okay. I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, I am really excited to hear this new read. It's so new; I haven't had a chance to read it yet. So, when you are ready, please read aloud for us. I am ready. I, I I'm going to read the uh, prologue and the first chapter. Excellent. If that's okay with you. Blood trickled from the man's mouth. He sat on a hard concrete floor back against a black basement post, naked, blindfolded, hands bound with zip ties, mouth gagged. Down below, blood spurted from an empty space in the middle of his body. The swift swipe of a large sharp object had separated him from his private parts. He could not see the blow coming, nor observe the result, but the excruciating pain told him all he needed to know. He could feel blood oozing down both legs, trickling to his feet onto the cement floor. He understood that if his blood continued to gush at its current level, he would soon be dead. He was terrified, mumbling pleas for his life, silently begging for compassion, mercy, or if neither was forthcoming, a quick death. Was she seeking only to torture him or was she a sadistic killer? Yes, his captor was a woman. The captive tried to calm down without success to make sense of the past few hours. He attempted to recognize his captor the location of his captivity, anything he could recall in case a miracle occurred and he survived this torturous event. 
The room was secluded. The door was shut. The tightly bound gag over his mouth prevented him from calling for help. The frantic man couldn't know this, but the door was bolted shut. What is this place? A basement? Where? Have I been here before? Who is this woman? Is this how you like it? She spoke in a whisper, raped him to understand the attraction, poured vodka down his throat to soften him up for the kill, and finally, sadistically, sliced off his manhood. The scene was akin to the worst horror movie he could imagine. Only this time, he was the star of the show. In a movie or on television, he might have survived this horrible ordeal, lived to tell his story to the authorities. People love horror stories, don't they? Perhaps he'd seek revenge in the sequel. Alas, this was not an imagined scene from a television show or a movie. It was real. And the tortured victim was about to take his last breath. His thoughts turned to the love of his life. The worst part of this, my love, is being forced to leave you. To never fulfill the dreams we had or the plans we made. We will never have a child together. But you can still have a child. Move on with your life, my darling. Mourn me. Don't forget me but find someone who makes you as happy as I have been with you by my side. I will always love you and watch over you. I am so sorry for my momentary lapse in judgment, my indiscretion. He was in and out of consciousness, becoming somewhat impervious to the horror. Fear, anger, pain, and torment slowly gave way to a silent acknowledgement of his soon-to-come death. He had fought courageously, struggled mightily to survive, there was solace in the fact that he had done all he could. Brad Crawford was a two-term congressman from Southfield, Michigan. His 14th district encompassed much of the larger cities and suburbs northeast and northwest of Detroit. He wondered if his abduction and torture had political implications. Did his enemies hate him that much? What could he have done to enrage this woman or the people she worked for to earn this horrific fate? Try as he might, he could not think of any issue he supported or opposed that might be that consequential. In his second term, he was a rising star in the Democratic Party, a liberal supporter of the new president and sponsor of a highly popular 21st century infrastructure bill that would create high paying jobs and improve the quality of life in his district. Could his support of President Belding's progressive legal policies be a reason to torture and kill him? He was a popular, even beloved congressman to most of his constituents. This tormented him in his last moments. He was dying to know why he was bound, gagged, and bleeding to death. Feelings of confusion and sleepiness set in. A door opened. He sensed a light come on between, beneath his mask. Someone spoke to him. He thought he recognized her disguised voice, but could not comprehend her words. He felt beads of sweat trickle from his temples and armpits, much like the blood that trickled from his empty groin. Someone fumbled with his restraints. His hands were freed, but he was too weak to fight back or resist in any way. His gag was removed, but he was too feeble to scream, protest his fate, or plead for a last second reprieve. His blindfold was removed. His vision was blurry, he could not focus. 
He searched the room for his captor and made out the shape of a woman. But the image appeared and disappeared in a flash. She touched his crotch, admired her handiwork, but he no longer felt pain or humiliation. It was as if the trauma disabled him, gotten bored and transported into someone else's body. He calmed, spoke to his version of God, cursed him for his fate, and thanked him for the good things in life. His terrific family, a wonderful woman, and a rewarding career devoted to public service. His tormentor continued to speak to him. Her voice sounded like multiple voices speaking simultaneously, unintelligible. Hurried from his bonds and gag, he tried mightily to move and speak, but all he could muster was a soft moan. He felt someone tugging at both his legs. His body straightened, his head banged against the hard floor. He tried to cry out in pain, but he could only admit another fragile moan. He felt a sudden rush, a pulsating movement, vibration or sense of exhilaration. His vision suddenly focused and he saw a stern, muscular, short-haired woman pulling him forward. He again tried to mount a defense, to call out or resist, but sounds were muffled, his vision blurred. He felt the odd sensation once again. What was it? Just some last gaps energy? Nothing made sense. He tried to suck in a deep breath, the kind that emits a gasp of relief. As if he had just emerged from the depths of a swimming pool, having stayed underwater for too long. But he could not breathe. He no longer had lung capacity. He was now a mere shadow of life. He felt himself break into a million pieces. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. His last conscious thought on this earth. The room became dark and quiet. Chapter one. Mia Folger lay on a couch, reflecting on her surroundings. Some version of a couch was featured in many television and movie scenes set in a psychiatrist's office. Do modern therapists typically use them for treatment? When she initially consulted Dr. Harold Rothenberg, her session was conducted in a different room, no couch. Once doctor and patient began to feel more comfortable with each other, therapy moved to the current room, the one with the couch. The couch was a rather common prop for psychoanalysts, first introduced by none other than Sigmund Freud. Freud learned, and practitioners have uniformly agreed, that patient-doctor encounters benefit from being freed of the constraints and self-consciousness that comes from looking at each other in the eye. A patient enjoys the freedom of being able to talk without critique. The therapist office should be one in which a patient cannot see the reaction his or her statement elicits in the analyst, in the analyst. a judgment-free zone, so to speak. The couch facilitates more honest, heartfelt responses. Mia Folger began psychotherapy with Harold Rothenberg because she loathed herself and began to disparage her husband, who she insisted she deeply loved. She sought treatment to understand and rid herself of these feelings. Several sessions into her treatment, Rothenberg switched her session location to the room with a couch. Mia now enjoyed her newfound freedom to speak her mind without witnessing Dr. Rothenberg's judgment. I am very self-critical, she opined in an early session. I feel my mother's negativity her unrelenting, her unrelenting judgment toward everything and anything I try to accomplish in life. At first, Rottenberg thought she was typical of most patients 
who complain about their mothers. While most complain and imagine their mother were constant critics, internal pictures of patients' mothers are commonly darker than the reality. These men and women could usually be persuaded in therapy that the mothers of their imagination were far more fearful than their actual mother. But this was not the case for Mia Folger. Her mother was unrelenting, evil, judgmental, impossible to please, and a consistent negative force in Mia's life. Mia was married, wanted to have children someday, but would never be a stay-at-home wife and mother. She was a radio talk show host and political advocate, activist. She planned and, attend, and attended many political events. Mia first met her husband at one such political event. Rothenberg thought he would encounter trust issues with Mia, that it would take multiple sessions to enable her to feel comfortable confiding her deepest and darkest concerns. To his surprise, Mia took to therapy almost immediately. By her third session, she, she emerged more free, less self-critical, and responded willingly and forthrightly to his questions. More importantly, she seemed to appreciate his insights. Today, however, she seemed distant, uncomfortable, aloof. Do most patients lie on this couch? Rothenberg was surprised by her sudden change in attitude. He pondered an answer to her couch question, then told her it was a psychotherapy tool, one that relieved a patient from the burden of face-to-face -face treatment. Many patients prefer the couch for that reason. He asked her whether she had any thoughts or memories that would be easier to talk about if she wasn't forced to look him in the eye. Mia was conflicted. Although she appreciated Rothenberg's concern, she was somewhat, somewhat ambivalent about revealing her deep-rooted feelings when it came to motherhood, fatherhood, and marital relations. Rothenberg was anything but judgmental, as she was about these subjects, but there were aspects of life she felt were private, feelings that caused fear and profound shame. Would the couch free her to discuss these things too? Help her rid of herself of these feelings? Let me get this straight. On this couch, I can now reveal all matters I wouldn't feel comfortable revealing to your face. I don't like your shoes or the way you cross your legs when we talk. I would never say those things to your face. Not exactly what I had in mind, but you get the idea. What do you think? More comfortable, less comfortable, or no different? I'm not sure. I told you how I feel, though. Maybe there's something to this couch thing after all. Whatever gets the job done and makes you feel more forthcoming. Therapy is about discussing what's bothering you in an open and honest manner. My intent is to reduce your in inhibitions toward talking about what you are thinking or feeling. Anything specific on your mind today? I love my husband. I'd love to slice him open and then turn the knife on myself. Mia's husband was Bradley Crawford, a two-term congressman, son of Congressman Isaiah Crawford, the long-term congressman of the 13th district, which included the city of Detroit. The younger Crawford was recently reelected in a landslide to serve the 14th congressional district. He rode the coattails of a proverbial blue wave led by current president Louis Belding, made possible by the toxic divisive presidencies of Ronald John and Stephen Golding. Rothenberg lived in the district and voted twice for the younger Crawford. He was impressed with the young man's rhetoric, was aligned with his politics, and considered him a future presidential material. Crawford had solid credentials, came from good stock, and by all accounts, was a wonderful human being. 
Rothenberg was stunned by Mina's sudden admission of suicidal and homicidal ideations, especially as it related to her husband. Is she telling the truth or is she just trying to get my attention? As an experienced therapist, Rothenberg knew that most people with such thoughts never acted upon them. Rothenberg also knew that Mia was depressed and angry, but he had not considered her a danger to herself and other. Had he missed something? After all, clinically depressed people are sometimes predisposed to violence. Depression, when, when coupled with weak impulse control, frustration, irritability, and rage, can often lead to violent acts. While their sessions revealed many of these personality traits, Rothenberg did not consider Mia a person with weak impulse control. Quite to the contrary, he decided to explore this further. How long have you felt this way? A long time. How long? Not sure, a couple of years at least. How long have you been married? Four years. Happily? Yes, for the most part. What causes you to qualify your yes answer? I want to have a baby. Brad is more focused on his career. Is that a reason to kill him? After all, you can't have a baby with him if he's dead, Rothenberg rationalized. I agree. I didn't say I had a logical explanation for my feelings, only that I felt them. But would you act on that? And do you actually loathe yourself enough to consider suicide? I didn't say I could or would act upon them. I said I'd like to. That's an important distinction. Rothenberg also knew that a person with a history of past violence, abuse, or illicit drug use was far more likely to resort to acts of violence. Is there anything about your past I should know? Have you ever been abused physically or sexually? Have you ever been taken or have you ever taken or abused drugs of any kind? Anything you tell me as well as you well know will be kept in complete confidence. No, nothing like that. Rothenberg was happy to hear Mia say this, assuming she was being truthful. He decided to focus on impulsivity. Impulsivity correlates favorably with aggressive behavior. The more he probed, the less concerned he became. She took no drugs of any kind. There were no recent events in her life that would trigger any type of violent outburst. She appeared to have good impulse control, almost no rage, and exhibited little aggressive behavior. All, clinical drug, all drug and clinical tests were negative. Mia had no history of aggressive behavior or, or serious childhood trauma, no impulsiveness, and no alcohol abuse. Rothenberg decided to note her comments and monitor her for signs of aggressive, increased aggressive behavior or serious escalation of threats to commit hostile or belligerent acts. At the end of the day, he remained relatively unconcerned about her admission. How are you feeling right now? I'm fine, thank you. How about yourself? Funny, Mia, are you trying to get a rise out of me? No, not at all. Good, so tell me, if you were going to commit suicide or kill your husband, what's the plan? How would you do it? Rothenberg challenged. He knew the absence of a plan was a sign his patient lacked the clinical intensity to commit the acts. I haven't thought that far ahead. I just get angry now and then, every now and then. This was the response he hoped for. Suicidal or homicidal thoughts to be considered serious need imminent risk, a plan, some intrusiveness or frequency. None of this was present in Mia's response. Well, Mia, I'm glad you disclosed these feelings. This is a very important step in your treatment. Let's keep talking about them. Perhaps we can develop a safety plan together. 
I'd like to increase the frequency of your visits. Would that be okay? Sure, I like talking to you. If you ever feel out of control, you'll contact me immediately? I will. Great, let's get together in two days. Make an appointment as you check out today. Check out, Mia laughed. Rathenberg huffed and chuckled. Right, <laughs> poor choice of words. How about see you in two days? See you in two days, she repeated with a grin. Da, 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 da. Yay, thank you so much. This is a really intense story as all of your stories are. What was your favorite part about writing this particular novel? Well, the for me, I, I don't know about the reader, but all of my other novels were somewhat political. Although there, as you as you heard, there are political um, elements of this novel, mm -hmm. but the topics were ripped from the headlines. I wrote a book about a school shooting. I wrote a book about a, a police officer shooting an innocent black man. I right. wrote a book about the Supreme Court and, and, um, and a sexual and assault. And another on immigration, sure. And another on immigration. So this one is a, is a straight whodunit, and it does not have betrayal in the title. <laughs> so, right, yeah. So it's a, it's a complete departure for me to write. So um, this one is complete fiction out of your own imagination. Correct. correct. So uh, that, that process was, that difference in process you very found much, enticing very much so very much so that's uh and fun. that and that's what was fun for me yeah yeah because uh it, it allows you to explore a different level of creativity and that is that is correct awesome very cool well i'm so glad that you came out to read for us today and i look forward to picking up the book um, anyone who's interested in learning about your other books or this one in particular can certainly check the show notes and all the links um, are there ready for people to do a deeper dive if they'd like. Thanks again, Mark, and I hope you'll come back and read for us again another time. I will. I wrote a children's book. I'll be happy to come and read my children's book to you. That would be great. Uh, Melinda, Melinda Faugust uh, illustrated it. It's, it's Excellent. It's yeah, she's fantastic. Yes, she is. Thank you again, Mark. Um, have a great night, and uh, we'll come back and listen to a story another day. You got it. Thank you for listening to Indie Reads Aloud Radio. We hope you'll join us again next week for another story. If you're an indie author and you'd like to share your story with us, visit our website dkpwriter.com to sign up and read aloud.